Welcome to PodClast with Lara Axtell, a seasoned educator of 26 years. In each episode of PodClast, Lara explores a current educational topic from a variety of perspectives to help improve the future of education. PodClast is brought to you by Reading Horizons. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. And now, PodClast with your host, Lara Axtell. Hello, I'm Laura Axtell, your host. Today's podcast episode is part one of a two-part series on the intervention model known as RTI. We are really fortunate to have two experts in this area joining us to explain the model and what they are seeing in schools across the country. Part two in the series will air on July 10th. That episode will focus on solutions from our experts with specific recommendations, and we will be joined by an administrator who will describe the effective model of intervention they have used with success in her district in Texas. Our first guest today is Jim Wright, a certified school psychologist and national trainer and consultant on RTI. He is the author of five books and the creator of really the first website on RTI called Intervention Central. You can find that at interventioncentral.org. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us today, Mr. Wright. Thanks for inviting me, Laura. Mr. Wright, as a way to start this conversation, could you begin by explaining the concept of response to intervention? What were the original goals of this initiative? You know, the RTI model is really set up to take any existing or available supports in the school to help at-risk learners and really organize them in a way that's going to be most efficient but also most effective. Most RTI models will divide up the supports in school into like three levels. We call them tiers. And the most important tier, the most important level is going to be the classroom. So that would be called tier one. This involves the classroom teacher's ability to deliver strong core instruction, but also her or his ability to differentiate and provide individualized support for those kids in the classroom who need it. And our rule of thumb, if this works out right in a school that, that's successful, is at least 80% of our school population is really going to be successful with you know classroom support alone. Then we get up to the next level, the second tier, and that would be tier two. And this is really supplemental. This is students who need help above and beyond what the classroom teacher can provide, often students who need remediation in off-grade level skill gaps. It's typically small group, not always, but it's often delivered that support by, you know, interventionists, by uh, reading and math teachers, for example. And the expectation and hope here is that we'll have no more than 10 to 15 percent of a school population that might need that level of support. And then at the tippy-top, the very top of this triangle, if you will, this, this pyramid of interventions, we've got Tier 3. These are our most intensive students who, who need the most kind of academic support. The great majority of the students are still general education, but often we need to do some problem-solving to figure out what custom support or plan that they need. So this would be maybe 1% to 5% of our school population would need that Tier 3 support. So the whole point here is to try to organize our supports in school to be kind of rational and to be fairly, you know, given out, and also to make sure that we're doing the best with the limited resources we have. Your question also, though, what are the original goals of this initiative? So my background is as a school psychologist, and I worked in an urban district in, in central New York State, Syracuse City Schools, and before we had RTI, we had something that we used to jokingly call the wait-to-fail model. We'd have students who would you know, in kindergarten, we begin to struggle, for example, in reading in my urban district, and we wouldn't have a lot of organized supports in school. So, you know, not surprisingly, the student began to fall increasingly behind. By first grade, the gap was larger. By second grade, even larger. By third grade, the gap was large enough so that we would often look at that referral to special education to see if there might be some IEP supports to help that student. But of course, by then, the student had fallen so far behind that it was, you know, difficult to impossible to catch that student back up. 
nationally there's kind of a push to say, why are we waiting for kids to fail? Why can't we be proactive and put some of those supports front-loaded up front proactively to help that student? And that's where RTI came about, this notion that we should be catching kids early who've got any kind of emerging skill gaps and, and delays and really remediate, support them, and, and really catch them up without having to go through either the wait-to-fail time or having to get an IEP to provide that support. Small but appropriate level of support to address an emerging problem can often head off, you know, cascading problems later on. So it's really early intervention and prevention. So that's really where RTI started. You created the website Intervention Central, one of the first major online resources devoted to RTI. You've also written several best-selling books on this subject. How were you introduced to RTI? What led to your personal commitment to this model? Well, I mentioned that I started my educational career as a school psychologist in the urban district. When I first got there, I, I certainly noted there were a lot of you know student needs in, in my elementary building, but I was also really pleased to see how staff were committed to wanting to help these students to close their gaps and to be successful. And so staff, you know, teachers were approaching me as a school psychologist and, and asking me informally, did I have any ideas to help the student with like a reading fluency delay or the student who had difficulty focusing their attention in the classroom? And so I kind of got hooked on trying to find research-based ideas to help my teachers that I was working with. This was actually just before the World Wide Web kind of, you know, hit town in the mid-90s. And so for me, it was a matter of having to go up to the graduate research library at Syracuse University and going through these educational journals, trying to find intervention ideas that I could then turn into some kind of a usable script to, to share with the teachers in my school. And what I began to find over time is that, yes, many of these ideas were effective, which was very reinforcing for me. And also over time, I began to develop this collection of intervention ideas that I thought, you know, how can I share these with other people? Because it looks like they're useful. And by then, the World Wide Web was here. So I thought, why not create a website, start making some of these resources free and available to people? And that's where Intervention Central got its start. It's about 18 years old now. Then I also, you know, after being a school psychologist, I went on to work as a, a school administrator in both Syracuse and a suburban district nearby. And I really kind of had firsthand experience with trying to help, you know, the districts, you know, put in a response to intervention model in place. So I got a really good sense of what it takes to kind of change a system to accommodate that, that RTI model to help kids. And for very positive, you know, personal reasons, I was able to become a full-time consultant and trainer around RTI working privately a little bit more than a decade ago. So for the past 10 years, I've been traveling around my own state of New York and around the country working with, you know, scores of schools, helping them to get RTI off the ground. So, you know, that's how I kind of got started with RTI, but that's also where my ongoing commitment comes from. I've, I've worked with schools and seen them be really successful in getting this model in place. So you visit lots of schools. You've worked with lots of teachers. As you mentioned, Tier 1 was really expected to reach the majority of students because it's delivered as whole class instruction. Tiers 2 and 3 really were designed for smaller numbers of students who needed intervention. So with respect to reading instruction specifically, a concern is that teachers haven't received the training and don't have the research-based resources to adequately address reading instruction at that whole class level. Many students are then moved into intervention tiers, which become larger and larger. Do you share those concerns? What has been your experience with reading instruction at Tier 1? Well, I do agree that classroom teachers are not always given sufficient training, you know, to, to provide effective instruction and to be able to differentiate that instruction to reach struggling learners, uh, whether it's reading or, by the way, RTI obviously applies to other academic areas as well, and I think the same concerns are there. And what we do know 
is that when classroom practices really aren't what they need to be, they're inadequate, that creates pressure that can really drive up that referral of students into those higher levels of intervention. So you're absolutely right. And this can quickly overwhelm a school's RTI supports. No magical formula here. I mean, your question implies the answer, right? That schools need to identify effective reading and other instructional practices and programs that look like a good match for their students. And then what they need to be able to do is to make that long-term commitment to give teachers that necessary training and coaching to deliver that instruction. And what I want to point out here is, of course, the business of schools is to help kids to learn and for teachers to be delivering effective instruction. So that notion of really beefing up, you know, strong reading instruction it's not an RTI mandate. It's just what schools need to do to, to fulfill their mission. RTI tries to find you know ways to help schools with that, but schools have always kind of first and foremost had to focus on strong reading instruction. In, in, in RTI, there is no shortcut, right? We, you know, building intervention resources at tiers two and three are not going to solve the problem of inadequate instruction in the classroom. We still have to do that hard work of training teachers and um, across multiple school years paying attention to the results to make sure that that teacher training sticks, that we're getting good outcomes with kids. I think RTI can help us to evaluate that, but that's beyond, I think, just the RTI scope. Let's talk a little about those tiers two and three. Could you discuss a couple of concerns that have been raised? In many schools, intervention at tiers two and three is provided by paraprofessionals who may have limited training rather than certified teachers. But on the other hand, some schools have tiered intervention programs provided by teachers certified in specific reading programs that may limit the number of students they can work with and may require a year or more to complete so that other students are on waiting lists to receive services. Do you see this happening in schools? And what was the original design for intervention? Have those models of intervention been effective? You know, Laura, you lay out two extremes, right? We're either handing off our at-risk learners to paraprofessionals who've got less training, or on the flip side, maybe we've got certified teachers who have a handful of long-term, more intensive programs, but limited slots available. So what I'd like to see is some balance between really what are two extremes, right? You did ask, though, you know, what was the, the original intent of the model? So, you know, if we put a microscope on tiers two and three, you know, how should they be set up to provide effective academic support for these at-risk learners? I think to start with, we would want to make sure that they're at tiers two and three, we have a qualified educator, right? I'm going to call them the interventionist, is working most typically with a small group of students. We want to make sure the students have some shared homogeneous, you know, profile of academic need. That interventionist should be using evidence-based programs or practices with these intervention groups. The ideal is that that interventionist is also taking data. They're monitoring student progress on at least a biweekly basis, ideally every week. Now, here's a crucial piece. Every six to eight weeks, I would want that interventionist to be sort of evaluating the overall performance of each in in that academic group at tier two or three. So if we see after six or eight weeks, kids are clearly not making expected progress, it gives us a nice option to shift that student potentially off into some kind of a different intervention program or something. So that way, we don't have students locked into programs over the long term that that really aren't effective, which is is a real problem in schools. So so that's, that's sort of the ideal. If schools want to build capacity at tiers two and three to have a variety of options available, I think that's probably what they should shoot for. And part of that capacity building could definitely include paraprofessionals providing services at tiers two and three. This this is pretty common in schools, but there's you know a caveat here. We want to make sure that those paraprofessionals have sufficient training in the programs or practices they're using. They should be supervised by certified teachers so that we've got that oversight. A great example of where I think a paraprofessional, and I've seen it work, can really have an impact 
is if a student has some kind of an easily identified skill gap that for remediation. Classic example that I found in a school that I worked in in an urban district was we had a lot of students with limited reading fluency. And there's some nice strategies out there, paired reading, repeated reading, pretty simple to use, but they're time intensive. It's one-on-one with a, tut- a tutor and a student. Those are excellent interventions for a paraprofessional to deliver very effectively, obviously with, with tra- appropriate training and supervision. Uh, and what that does frees up that certified teacher for those more complex instructional or intervention programs. And at the same time, you mentioned, you know, in your introduction to this, this question, a scenario which teachers are trained to provide tier two and three services, but they've got limited capacity in those intensive reading programs and commitment. You know, it's 18 weeks, 20 weeks, the full school year. Real potential here just to get a bottleneck. Too many kids lined up for too few intervention slots. It's not the entire solution, but I think what can really be helpful here is to have a range of potential intervention solutions, let's say at tier two, when, when students begin to show emerging reading problems, and that our first go-to intervention is not going to be the most intensive one available, right? Three kids in a group, and it's going to be 20 weeks. We're going to say, if we tried some lesser things first for those students with emerging needs, and if those are not successful, then maybe they really need that more intensive support. Some schools do make that mistake, though. They take the most intensive intervention programs, and they kind of fill them up with kids with fairly mild needs, and then there's no capacity left. So I think we have to be strategic about who we pick for those most intensive programs. At the same time, I think even if students are in these longer-term kind of tier two or three reading programs, sure, the program may dictate, let's say, 20 weeks so that student before we can expect to see the full impact. But we can be doing periodic checks along the way. And I would say personally, if I saw that a student is showing very little evidence of progress in six to eight weeks of getting that program, I think we can call the question here and just decide it's time to shift that student into a more effective program, potentially bring up slots in those more intensive programs for other students who might benefit. I think being strategic, making use of parapros maybe, potentially for the less intensive interventions, freeing up that reading teacher to put more energy into the more intensive interventions, having an array of intervention options and making sure we're matching kids based on level of need to the intensity of the intervention. Over time, I think that allows schools to be flexible and have greater capacity. It's not going to be an either-or. Thanks for that explanation. That was very helpful. We'll be right back. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons. With data-informing software and teacher-led instruction, students receive targeted intervention that leads to rapid reading improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com demo to see if Reading Horizons is right for your school. Mr. Wright, I'd like to talk now about RTI more broadly. Over the years, RTI has gotten mixed reviews. Some studies have indicated that students in intervention tiers don't make any greater progress than peers who don't receive intervention at all. And a recent Department of Education report concluded that RTI negatively affected academic achievement or produced no effect. First of all, have you seen some of that data? I have seen some some reports out there that report similar findings, yes. Oh, I want to follow up with that. So Douglas and Lynn Fuchs at Vanderbilt University have stated that RTI is being viewed unfairly and that those evaluations are not accurate. They do raise issues, however, about the difficulty with successfully implementing RTI at three tiers, which they consider to maybe be too complex. What is your perspective on the current implementation of RTI? Yeah, you know, yes, two kind of related questions. So the first is, you know, what do I think of the current research on RTI effectiveness? First, I'm really glad they're doing it. RTI has been around for like 15 years now in the national scene. So after 15 years, you know, we really need to be evaluating its effectiveness. In the studies that I've seen around RTI, particularly those that that don't find a strong positive impact, 
I think that allows us to really make a conclusion, which is that many schools who are, who are doing what they call RTI, it's just not effective. So I think that's it's a valuable finding. What I did notice, though, in these studies that I looked at, was that often the criterion for judging whether a school was an RTI school was whether the school said it was an RTI school. So it's like you know, schools are self-identified. What I don't have a sense of from those studies is whether those schools are implementing anything like an RTI model with any kind of real rigor or a consistency. So if I were to have a wish list of future research I'd like to see done on RTI and its effectiveness, I would be very interested in a study in which they approach schools and first having some kind of an external evaluator verify the school is implementing an RTI model with some kind of you know real integrity. And for only that small subset of schools, they would look at to say, okay, you're implementing it with integrity. Are you really seeing an impact? Because that's really the question. If we're doing RTI in a way that any you know, external observer would say you're doing it, quote, unquote, right, are you really having an effect, really having an impact? That would be a much more involved study to do. I haven't seen you know, studies like that, but that's the kind of research I'm interested in looking at. Uh, however, you also mentioned Drs. Doug and Lynn Fuchs. They're finding that RTI uh, appears to be either inconsistently implemented or only partially implemented by schools, and they're wondering whether it's just too too complicated. And I think that's a valid question. You know, is it is it too complex for schools to feasibly put into place? You know, fair question. My own experience is that schools, if they pay attention and they, they put some, some commitment into it, they do have that capacity to put an RTI model in place. I've worked with a number of schools that have done that successfully. But I also want to do a quick reality check. Certainly in my own state of New York and in other states across the country, um, RTI is being, quote-unquote, mandated by that state ed department. But what doesn't come with it are financial resources to help schools to train staff or purchase materials. At the same time, schools are being hit with a barrage of other state and federal requirements that are really overwhelming them as initiatives. So you can understand how even with schools who've got the best of intentions, RTI quickly becomes an afterthought. That They're seeing it in the rearview mirror as something that they say, okay, we're done, we did that, and then they move on, but they're not building or maintaining that RTI model. So I think it may be too complex. I think it may instead be that we're not, at a state and national level, helping schools to narrow their commitment to a few things that they could do well, including RTI. So I think it's doable, but I think that the pressures on schools tend to undermine their attempts to fully implement RTI. That's my experience. Mr. Wright, you've mentioned that, you know, the need to collect data, progress monitoring, strategic planning, capacity building, research. Is the RTI model being incorporated in the training for teachers in colleges and universities of education? How do they get the preparation to be able to do those things to effectively implement RTI? That's a great question, Laura. My sense is that that's kind of patchy. Um, I certainly have dialogue with some teacher training programs that have built RTI into that, and that's really a part of their work. But I continue to interact with administrators from various school districts around the country, and they're telling me that it's, it's often very difficult as they're interviewing new teaching staff to find staff that really do come in with that kind of background knowledge of RTI that they got in their training programs. So it might be unfair to say this because I haven't done a formal survey, but I think that many educational programs, teacher training programs, are still not really emphasizing that RTI model. In particular, what they're not doing is, if you will, training those frontline teachers who obviously, in the classroom, are the most important component of RTI. Thank you so much. We will hear from Mr. Wright again in part two. Our next guest is Dr. Douglas Fuchs. Dr. Fuchs is Professor of Special Education and the Nicholas Hobbs Chair of Special Education and Human Development at Vanderbilt University. 
and the co-director of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center Reading Clinic. In addition to his role as principal investigator in over 35 federally sponsored research grants, Dr. Fuchs is the author or co-author of more than 300 articles in peer-reviewed journals and 60 book chapters, and has been awarded a number of awards for his research and writing. Welcome to PodClass, Dr. Fuchs. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Laura. Nice to be here. Let's start with a broad question about RTI. There's a lot to discuss, but I'd like to back up a bit and get your thoughts as a former teacher and school psychologist working in the field of education now for many years. Do you agree with the need for a tiered system of supports for interventions such as RTI? Yeah, I do. I've supported uh, RTI in principle for, you know, 15 plus years and have tried in various ways to support its uh, implementation in schools. And I would say the short take on this question is for many, many decades, the only two games in town, so to speak, were the regular classroom or the general ed classroom and special education. And so we had millions of children who, for various reasons, were not performing sufficiently in the regular classroom. The only option for these kids was special education. And what RTI does is it reconceptualizes general education and restructures it, if you will, so that instead of there being just one manifestation of general education that is the regular classroom, the general education now can be understood in terms of multiple tiers of support, beginning with the regular classroom and then, as needed, increasingly intensive tiers of general education instruction. So because of that reconfiguration or that restructuring, because of the additional options that RTI in principle offers, you know, I've been I've been supportive of it. Okay, you mentioned the tiers. So tier one of the RTI model is based on the delivery of solid instruction to the whole class, correct? And that's really to prevent larger numbers of students requiring interventions in the upper tiers two and three. Is that a correct statement of the RTI premise? Yes, it is. For a long time, people would talk about RTI or would use as, a, as an illustration to aid description of RTI, this, this RTI triangle. So there would be this triangle and then the triangle would be divided into however many tiers, you know, the person talking believed to be necessary, three tiers, four tiers, whatever. But always the base of the triangle was and continues to be the general classroom. And as we know about any given physical structure, I mean, the base of any structure must be solid, must be secure, or else everything put on top of it is going to be insecure. So in order for RTI to work anywhere, the general classroom has to be functioning, you know, in a way that benefits a majority of kids. And this may anticipate some additional questions you may have, but the related premise of RTI is that the general classroom and the classroom teacher is not expected to, quote-unquote, succeed with every kid in the classroom. But in principle, the classroom teacher is expected to substantially benefit a majority of kids. If the classroom teacher, for whatever reason, can't do that, then what happens in an RTI framework is that too many 
kids are identified as unresponsive or insufficiently uh, benefiting, and they move to a next tier. And when you have too many kids moving to the next tier, you flood that next tier, making the, the, the instructors at that next tier, giving them a, a, a really, really overwhelming uh, job to do because they just have too many kids. That did anticipate my next question, which is that the general consensus about reading instruction based on research, much of what you've been involved in, is that this instruction at Tier 1 must be provided by knowledgeable teachers trained in effective reading methods. Based on your experience, are teachers receiving the training they need to provide that effective reading instruction in Tier 1? Well, nobody has his or her pulse on all 16,000 school districts in this country and, you know, hundreds of thousands of schools across the country. But my general impression over the years is the answer to your question is no. They are not being provided with the necessary training. Many of them, and I would say a majority of them, are not being trained in what I would consider to be best evidence practices. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. But the upshot is that as I see things, and I spend a fair amount of time in schools still, as I see things, best evidence practices tend not to be used. Validated instructional procedures and curricula and educational materials are not used. And that contributes to the fact that we have huge numbers of kids who are reading very poorly in this country, as evidenced by the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is sometimes referred to as the nation's report card. In 2015, a study of RTI was published, commissioned by the U.S. Department of Education. The conclusions of the report were less than favorable to the RTI model. You and Dr. Lynn Fuchs analyzed the study and published an extensive response. What did you determine about the outcomes of the study? Does it match what you're seeing elsewhere in schools across the country? Well, there, there are two things to, to say about that, that study or that evaluation. The first is the evaluation attempted to do two things. And we hear much more about the first than the second. The first thing that the evaluation attempted to determine was to answer, you know, the sort of $64,000 question, does RTI work? And, you know, without going into great detail, the intent was to study the effects of RTI in 146 so-called exemplary RTI schools in 13 states. And the evaluators were looking at the effects of RTI on first, second, and third grade children's reading performance. And they concluded that RTI had a negative effect in first grade, a slightly, very slightly positive effect in second grade, and no effect whatsoever in third grade. So overall, the media picked this up, and, and overall, you know, the judgment was that RTI was, you know, there was pretty underwhelming support for RTI. But there were many things wrong with this evaluation, uh, with the evaluation's effort to answer this first question, whether RTI was effective, for reasons that my wife Lynn and I never understood, even though we had a two-hour sit-down with the chief evaluators of the study in New York City and, and discussed the evaluation again with them, uh, we could not figure out why they did the things they did in the name of the evaluation. 
they were really asking of these 146 so-called exemplary schools, you know, did they give a screening measure at the beginning of the year, and did they have a cut point that would help them determine who got RTI and who didn't get RTI? So for a given school, it turns out that in a lot of schools, kids below the cut point did not get RTI. Kids above the cut point did get RTI. And they did not tell us what kinds of educational programs and instructional programs and curricula and so forth were implemented in the name of RTI. We know nothing about what actually was done in the name of RTI. So as to their first purpose, was RTI effective? We just don't know. The second purpose of the evaluation was to describe as best they could what was done how they went about implementing certain features of RTI. And as hinted by what I've just told you about their first aim, what the evaluators found was that in a minority of schools, RTI was implemented very well. In a majority of schools, as best the evaluators could tell, RTI was implemented very poorly. And keep in mind, these were so-called exemplary schools that had to meet certain criteria before they became part of the evaluation. So this is a very long-winded way of saying that the RTI, this national RTI evaluation, the only national evaluation that's been conducted to date on RTI, can't really tell us anything about whether it's effective. And secondly, gives us considerable information to conclude that many schools are having a very hard time implementing it appropriately. And I think that the reason why many of these 146 schools seemingly failed to implement RTI in a way that researchers and policy people across the country would have expected them to implement it is because RTI, as typically conceived, is a very, very complicated service delivery system. It requires a lot of practitioners, especially at the building level, and it may be requiring too much of many practitioners. Some are pulling it off beautifully, but I believe they're the distinct minority. So based on some of those flawed studies then, is the RTI model getting a bad rap? I I, I don't know. I don't know. The, the, The conclusion from that evaluation sort of was RTI doesn't seem to work. We don't know. But again, based on the descriptive information that this evaluation provided, one could one could conclude with some justification that it's probably not working in a lot of schools. Thank you for sharing a part of your day listening to PodClast. We're going to end part one here. We want to thank Jim Wright and Dr. Douglas Fuchs for their expertise, and we invite you to join us for part two to hear the solutions they have for effective intervention. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of PodClast. To be notified when future episodes are available, subscribe to PodClast on iTunes. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review. To submit discussion topics or to recommend a student, parent, educator, or expert to be interviewed on future episodes, please send an email to podcast at readinghorizons.com. PodClast is brought to you by Reading Horizons the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. 
With data-informing software and teacher-led instruction, students receive targeted intervention that leads to rapid reading improvement. Visit ReadingHorizons.com to learn more.